0: Especially being one of the folks working on Alexa fairly early in its life cycle, an argument I got from folks a lot was like, well, why do I need that? Because I can already set a timer on my phone. And my argument back was like, it's not about doing new things in a lot of cases, it is about doing things you could already do in a way that's better for you in the moment.
1: Welcome to Design Drives. Your audio experience about what, how, and why design drives things forward. A podcast hosted by Sebastian Gier, together with forward-thinking design practitioners from around the world. Enjoy the episode. Today we talk with Cheryl Platz, and I'm absolutely grateful to have her on the podcast. As one of the first designers on Amazon Echo, she's a pioneer in the voice interface experience area, shipping these solutions at scale. From starting as a designer in the video games industry, she tells about her learnings designing both B2C and B2B solutions at Microsoft, ranging from automotive to enterprise. And we will talk about her time at Amazon and the design process of the Amazon ecosystem. We touch on the value of design in multiple areas and I think there's tons of value to gain for you listening to her inspiring learnings. Thanks for being on the podcast, Cheryl.
0: Of course, glad to be here.
1: Super excited to have you. Um, maybe in the beginning for the audience, you can tell a little bit about um, your background, your early days, how you got into design.
0: Sure. Uh, so I am a user experience designer, a uh, full stack, but I, I've worked at a variety of companies, Disney, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, and even spent some time in the video game industry. But I, I've i always been passionate about both Technology and artistic endeavors, and when I was in school, I, it, you know, it was still back in the late '90s. It, people kind of drove you to choose one or the other. And when I was visiting colleges and and trying to decide between programs, I visited Carnegie Mellon, and I saw this professor, a uh, man named Rand- Randy Pausch talking about uh, human-computer interaction and how it was a combination of cognitive psychology, visual design, and computer science. And from that moment on, I was sold. It's like, that's exactly what I've always wanted to do, is find a way to combine both of these disciplines. And so from then on, it was just a question of figuring out how to get the right training and how to get into the industry, uh, and and sort of singularly focused after that. So I uh, graduated from Carnegie Mellon University Mm -hmm. with a degree in computer science and human computer interaction. So I'm, um, you know, my background is a bit more technical than some designers, which has been helpful when you get into stuff like prototyping or voice design or things like that, that uh, deal with artificial intelligence. But uh, my senior year in college uh, was mm-hmm. also the year that September 11th happened. So the design firm job I had lined up went away. It was uh, their major clients were banking and banking wasn't a great space to be in. So I spent four years in the video game industry after doing a year of grad school at Carnegie Mellon, figured if I was going to be broke, might as well uh, learn more in the process. And that's what led me to my first few jobs as a as a lead producer in the video game industry. and. Game design is interesting because it's, you know, it's it's interaction design where you're intentionally difficult in spots or where you're trying to get an emotional reaction. Uh, so that was, and I learned mm-hmm. a lot about software development there from beginning to end. You know, the projects were really aggressive. I learned about interesting hardware constraints, and that was really formative for my later career because I got to work on a new platform called the Nintendo DS, which had touch interaction and voice interaction in 2002. <laughs> it's like very groundbreaking years mm-hmm. before the iPhone. So I was lucky in that I got a really early exposure to multimodal design, and um, that that influenced my career. Uh, but after about four years in the video game industry, I got a little bored, and I wanted to change. So I ended up heading over to Microsoft to work on a project called the System Center Configuration Manager, which was server software. My friends all thought I was crazy, but I really like complex problems, and servers have complex problems. <laughs> Uh, so that's been the other theme in my career. So if you look at the the jobs I've had, whether it's working on the Echo or the, uh, you know, the Alexa platform. Uh, or whether it's working on things like Azure, generally I'm looking for, I, I'm drawn to problems of great complexity or drawn to problems where you're working with cutting edge technology, new interfaces, problems that nobody's ever solved before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and those passions continue to drive me. I guess the other defining thing about me as a, as a designer is that I'm an improviser in my free time. And so that really helps me with my storytelling skills and with those sort of, soft skills you need to convince people to take on your work uh, to take on an investment mm-hmm.
1: yeah that was a great overview uh, we go deep into some of the things you just uh, mentioned but before I forget to ask it do you actually have a connection to Germany because your second name is Platz
0: yes that's true uh, half of my family is from Germany uh, half Irish half German
1: ah, okay okay <laughs> Uh, so back to your experience, when was actually the first time uh, you had a project regarding voice interface design and artificial intelligence?
0: Well, that was really in the video game industry. So uh, mm-hmm. when I, I worked on a launch title for the Nintendo DS uh, called The Herbs, which is a terrible name spelled U-B-R-Z. Uh, many people thought it was a drug reference. That's another story. But I, that product was my first touch interface experience, my first natural sort of interface experience. But a few years later, I was the lead producer on a project called Disney Friends, which was a first party title for Disney, uh, where the pro- the concept was you got to build friendships with four major Disney characters, Stitch, uh, uh, Dory, uh, Simba from The Lion King, and Winnie the Pooh. Mm-hmm. And we felt that, and they Nintendo had just released their first voice recognition libraries for the DS. So we were like, that's a great, if you're building friendships with these characters, what's more social than talking to the characters? Uh, so we took on that challenge as part of our game design, which is uh, allowing uh, kids to use a very small grammar of words to speak to the device and have it respond. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a push-to-talk interface. It wasn't natural language. This was not connected to the internet. So this was very very early days for voice interaction, but I still learned a ton about like the emotional connection we get to our voice interfaces and, um- about how sort of the statistical modeling and grammar like for for language-based interfaces work like how having several words with the same sound like a sh sound would cause all of them to perform poorly Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was really for and i also saw how hard it was to localize experiences with voice since we needed to ship in i think six languages up front and nobody was shipping voice interfaces much less shipping them in six languages near the same time so uh I was both really compelled and really like had a lot of respect for how difficult it was to do those interfaces. And then fast forward, when I ended up on the Windows Automotive team and I got on the, on board, they were look we realized that voice interfaces were a big part of... What we did as uh, design designers for automotive, and somebody was going to need to own that design. And of the people there, I was like, well, I have worked on some voice interfaces before, so I'll take it on. Uh, I'm sure there's tons to learn, but I'd love to to get back into it. And I was great. I was lucky in that there were some really fantastic folks at Microsoft at the time, uh, like Lisa Steifelman and a couple of the other uh, alumni of. Uh, big acquisition Microsoft had done a few years prior that were working on what essentially became Cortana. And so I got to collaborate with them and learn from them on the job about how they did their work, how and how they delivered interfaces you couldn't see.
1: Mm -hmm. Got it. Fascinating. Was that the initial motivation joining Microsoft working on these voice user interfaces?
0: Well, it wasn't natural user interfaces when I joined Microsoft. It was the complexity Mm -hmm. that that got me to jump ship and and head over. Um, Mm -hmm. I was really compelled. And honestly, I was looking for a contrast. I loved working on video games, but as as a user experience researcher, it can be tough to work with kids because they aren't great at telling you what's wrong and they shouldn't be their kids. But uh, also that those are the only interfaces I've ever tested where you, I, I had a child vomit during a test. I had kids peeing on seats. And so like the first time I got to test with an adult who was like, I like this interface. I like the amount of white space. And this is really easy to use. I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> this is, he's, he said, he used words to describe his feelings about the interface. This is so novel. Uh, so uh, it was a fun change. Cause that, that gives you more concrete actionable work items. It was a lot more work in games, actually, to dig down. Like, if a kid's upset or, or doesn't react well to the, the interface, you have to dig to figure out what's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, adults are easier.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a fascinating topic you just touched there, like the the user feedback and user testing of um, designs in games, right? So you did it actually with kids, with the actual uh, target group. Yes. It might be very exciting uh, user testings when we compare it to some other products you could work on, so...
0: Yeah, the it, it when it works well and the kids are into it it's really fulfilling it, uh, and that's when we knew we had something special with Disney friends because um we were testing really early software alpha software uh, you know it had tons of bugs and sometimes it would crash and when it crashed it would just it would throw an assert the game would stop it, there'd be a black screen with white text all over it and we'd have to restart it but when we and you know that was fine we'd go and reset it for the kids and they'd keep playing but at the end when we interviewed them, they justified the crashes in terms of Stitch's personality interaction with them. Like they didn't see it as a digital, like they didn't see it as, oh, the game let me down, or oh, the game didn't work as intended. They were like, I didn't give Stitch the sandwich fast enough, so he turned my game off. It was like, oh, wow, that was an unexpected side effect that they were so immersed in the character interaction that this really ugly bug didn't Detract and like that was another one of those moments. Was like ah, I think this voice interaction thing and this natural user interface immersion is is really powerful, which could be both positive and negative. Um, it, with great power comes great responsibility.
1: Mm-hmm. So you joined Microsoft, learned about system designs, uh, designing at scale. Were there any other projects you worked on at Microsoft before you joined Amazon?
0: Well, my first round. So uh, my first project at Microsoft uh, was back before online services and Agile. So it was classic waterfall, like Mm -hmm. System Center Configuration Manager 2012. I was on that project for four years before we shipped. Uh, And after that shipped, I, I moved over to Windows Intune which is a similar product, but for the cloud. But I got kind of frustrated because it was the same problems we'd already solved, just connected to the internet mm-hmm. more often. And I was like, "Uh, eh, this isn't as challenging as I'd like, uh, which is when the Windows Automotive opportunity came up. And I, I, that I was, I've always been fascinated by the cognitive psychology impacts of mo- operating a motor vehicle like that was one of the first ex- examples in college that caught my attention like how our brain sort of extends mm-hmm. the boundaries of our body during the dra- driving process so if like someone approaches your car from the, the side you kind of you, you also cringe because mm-hmm. you're-, you're interpreting that like someone approaching your body it's just I've always been fascinated by that so it was really exciting to join that team and that was full on natural user interface design touch t- touch interfaces hard wear controls, uh, voice interactions, and all under intense cognitive load. And what I really loved about that project was the tight pairing with research. Like while I was on the design side, uh, we had a really rigorous research cadence. We were trying to quantitatively prove like what sizes of fonts and touch targets were safe to operate in a motor vehicle based on government standards and so uh, I found that really fulfilling like uh, that mm-hmm. really that really regimented process and and I felt like we learned a lot.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, did you also prototype it in actually vehicles or how did the prototyping look like?
0: So uh, our team uh, that team was a pretty uh, the, my the Gentleman who ran the design Oregon Windows Automotive, Craig Fox, set, spun up a really great team with about five designers. And then we had. Uh, three researchers and then we had uh, two prototypers and a couple of uh, one dedicated storyboard artist to take our initial stuff to high fidelity when we needed to go to like Ford for, for uh, feedback and things like that. So mm-hmm. we prototyped in, God, I think we were even still doing a little bit of flash uh, and some HTML and kind of whatever we needed to, to, yeah. but we did one round of prototyping that was outside of the vehicle. First we did uh, one of my coworkers built a driving system simulator with three 55 inch television screens uh we ripped the inside out of a ford explorer so we had the car the steering wheel parts of the dashboard um and so we could and we kind of we worked with research to make sure that the cognitive like it was it felt enough like driving that we could um that we could use it as a preliminary validation, and we we would always hook our participants up with eye-trackers too, so we could see when they were looking away to the road, the quote-unquote road. And then if something passed those tests Mm off-road, then we would get it into code uh, and then get that into a car, which we ran on a test track, and Mm -hmm. run the same set of tests that we did for prototyping um, outside of the vehicle.
1: Mm -hmm. Was it mostly Ford you work with? Well, any other OEMs?
0: Yeah, that was what killed the team in the end was when Ford decided to go in a different direction. Uh, and we it was a really interesting time in the automotive industry because uh, CarPlay had just been announced. Yeah. And Android Auto. And so it was an interesting relationship between the two companies. Uh, so Ford decided to go in a different direction. And for a while, we were looking into kind of doing a Cortana in the car thing, a lot like CarPlay. but. Uh, And and we had a lot of buy-in, but in the end, the the folks who would have been implementing the project got shifted to other teams within Microsoft, which killed us. So basically, everyone loved the idea, but uh, not enough to keep the developers there. Uh, And that was partially also caused by the sort of downfall of the second generation of Windows Phone. Like Cortana in the car makes a lot of sense if you've got Windows Phones around, but the minute those go away, nobody's going to run Cortana in the car on a phone that already has CarPlay. Uh, so that was a tough sell. Sometimes you have, go- you have great ideas and great execution, but the platform just isn't there for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And it was also during a time where people didn't yet talk about autonomous vehicles, right? Um, so the use cases you designed were mostly driver-focused use cases, correctly.
0: Yes, yeah, and that was always we would we would come up against the discussions about autonomous mm-hmm. driving. Uh, it was interesting to see how automakers would respond. But I, I've always been very nervous about the transition between the two modes, like fully autonomous via roads where all the cars are automated. Great, you know, traditional driving like we have now, fine. But I'm still remain very cautious of autonomous driving in a world where the car is surrounded by humans that aren't applying the same decision metrics that are more, less predictable. Like, that's, I feel like, the real danger zone.
1: Mm-hmm. When you said Ford went into a different direction, what did you mean exactly? Did they went with another AI system, another company because they also have android auto carplay well
0: they went with a different technology stack from what i understand uh, cuz you know windows when you're okay. working with us mm. like that was at the the fundamental like ba- like firm, firmware le- level of uh, car software uh, and they, I think they ended up going with like QNX or something. I, I, I didn't follow it much after that, mm-hmm. um, mostly to, uh, because it was still, it still burned uh, that we weren't, like we had such good design ideas and they weren't going to get to carry forward. But often it's rare that somebody's just offering the technology stack without the experience on top. And so, you know, they got, by switching technology stacks, yeah. they also switched uh, the interface. But it's interesting if you look at like the car industry and how they react to CarPlay and Google, you know, like absolutely. And- Android Auto, like the car industry really does not like those because they take away a differentiator that the automakers used to use to sell expensive product. Uh, you know, like, oh, you pay, you buy the, the Prius V, you get uh, our onboard system. And uh, now people don't really care about that as much if they're just going to plug in their phone and use the experience that Apple or Google is providing. So there's, a, there's still quite a bit of tension back and forth there. Like, I think it's very begrudging that automakers are uh providing access it's because consumers are demanding it but they would rather control the whole experience
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so there's not a comparable product for microsoft right Besides Android Auto, um, Apple CarPlay. I mean, I saw some Microsoft concepts, but I don't think they were officially from Microsoft. That's
0: true. They And that was the thing. We were going to like maybe experiment with that before Windows Phone kind of died out. Mm-hmm.
1: So you mainly worked with voice, but then you also looked into how touch, gesture, and you know, also interaction models play into it.
0: Yes. Uh, and so my role, I, I was the designer who owned the voice experience side of things. And then each of the designers owned one of the five hubs in the vehicle so i also worked on the quote the quote unquote start hub so mm-hmm. like what the where a customer would p- compile all their shortcuts and but uh, and i was also very much on systems design like i was doing the notification system for the vehicle which is fraught because you don't want to interrupt drivers while they're driving yeah. uh, but there are certain types of things that you're kind of expected to interrupt them for and that was part of my challenge was listen to all the the stakeholders what they thought they should interrupt drivers with and then go back to drivers and see like what actually made sense for them while we were in motion like things like uh tire pressure for example like that was something one of our partner teams mm-hmm. said well we want to let people know if the tire pressure is low but the timing's really important we went, we took that to testing and we found that it was really frustrating for drivers because if you're in motion you can't the tire pressure while you're in motion and it wasn't clear whether the car wanted you to stop mm. urgently or whether you can and if not it's like why did you tell me now why don't you wait until the drive is done before you tell me about the tire pressure yeah. it's not urgent so we you know tests like that we kind of ruled out a category of interruptive notifications uh, and you know also developed a perspective on how to phrase acoustic interruptions like when we say someone's calling to set drivers up for success uh, and and make sure that we kept things we we made it possible to respond conversationally, but also supported touch interactions, you know, we spent a ton of time testing where on the screen the notification would show up to minimize the amount of time the eye went away from the road. Uh, So we took every little decision really seriously.
1: Mm -hmm. And then you did another big shift, right? Joining Amazon. I think I see a pattern there. Again, quite big contrast. I mean, a comparison to Microsoft probably.
0: Yes, it was a big contrast. Can you
1: tell a little bit about why you joined and what time was it?
0: Yeah, so... As I mentioned, you know, after about two years on Windows Automotive, they they canceled the project, and uh, I I had the you know my manager at the time I, I had good fortune enough to to land on the Cortana team and get to work with those folks on you, you know still doing multimodal design, doing voice and touch designs for things like uh, the scheduling and appointment experience for Cortana. That was right about the right before we had announced that Cortana was coming to the desktop, uh, but because it because the car project had ended i had put some feelers out and as you know an opportunity came to me from uh, via somebody i knew that uh, amazon was looking for someone with voice design experience uh and who was comfortable working with like new heart with hardware uh, for for a new project and i was like oh okay yeah I'll, I'll talk to them and it's it was one of those things where i ended up with a two job offers. One of them was to work on fire TV, which is like this really known quantity. And I was, it was really compelling to me at the time because I really wanted to ship something after having two years of my work be canceled. Uh, but then the, this other team came and said, mm-hmm. we're giving you a job offer, but we can't tell you what it's for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, um that's And at first I turned it down because I wanted the sure thing. And, and uh, the VP who is the hiring manager, like she was Eva Manolis, she's a very talented and she used to work at Silicon Graphics in the day, talented engineer, very visionary. Uh, con- I'm thankful to her for convincing me to take the leap. And I was confused because I was like, why does Amazon want voice design technology? They're a, they're a shopping site. And of course, Two or three months after I got there, they announced the Echo. It's like, uh, oh, everything's different now. Okay. And it's ironic, too, because the team that hired me didn't necessarily know about the Echo either. Like, we literally woke up that morning. uh, We were prototyping what became the Echo Look. Uh At the time, it wasn't an Echo Project. It was just this... uh, Mm -hmm. If you've ever seen the movie Clueless, the Echo Look is essentially the clueless closet. It's, It's a device that helps you manage your wardrobe and get fashion advice. Uh, and it has a camera in it, but we knew from the beginning that voice was an important part of it. Because, for you know, people don't necessarily bring their phone into their closets to get dressed in the morning. So using an app isn't necessarily what you want. Um, and when you're taking photos of people's clothing, not having the photo in it, the the phone in the photo every time is is. A, a kind of a differentiator. So from the beginning, we suspected that, that voice would be important, but then the Echo showed up and, and it became a much easier sell to say, I, I, you know, voice is the future. We, we we need this product to support voice interactions in addition to its app. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a whirlwind uh, that that first year on the Echo look because I was employee number three or four, depending on how you count the team. I was the first designer on the project, which is, as any designer knows, it's like a once in a career opportunity. It's very rare that you get that, that kind of green blue sky um and and you know when you see a product ship i think a lot of designers look and they're like oh uh well that must that must have been so magical and it must have been so so easy because it shipped we were so convinced that the project would get canceled like all the time like constant fear of project (laughs) cancellation and that's natural when you're working on new stuff when you're working Mm -hmm. on the really cool new stuff like you never know whether you're going to survive uh, so, because it was it was a crazy idea. Uh, nobody in the market, nobody was shipping anything like this. Uh, it was more for women than men, which doesn't mm-hmm. happen a lot in tech. And so there were all these reasons that they could have canceled it. Uh, so that was that fell to me and my product management partner to to you know do the research, go to you know uh, we worked with an outside firm to do ethnography, but like literally sit in people's bedrooms, listen to them talking t- to us about their pain points and channel that into a vision that VPs could get behind and invest in.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, how did the team grow after you joined? Must be growing like crazy.
0: Well, uh, so the Echo Look team, we stayed really small. So it was like four people for the for three or four people for the first couple months until uh, we we sent a vision proposal to Jeff Bezos, uh, a six pager, a PRFAQ, which is a document that Amazon is sort of famous for incorporating in their uh, in their product process, which is essentially the press release that you would release with the product. And mm-hmm. then a bunch of frequently asked questions that we expect internal executives to ask and the answers to those questions. So leading up front with the tough questions and answers. And then my role contribution to that initial pitch was storyboards that showed uh, the customer journey on day zero and day 60, like how they interacted with the device and and it was important for me to show not just the things that went well, mm-hmm. but the things we th- thought were risky. Uh, so from there, uh, Jeff Green lit us for prototyping, and uh, that unlocked money to hire up about mm-hmm. twenty people, uh, most of whom were on the software side, doing things like uh, you know, hardware prototyping, computer vision, and uh, software, you know, like app development, and then near the end of that process we brought on our second designer who was more focused on on visual interactions while i stayed focused on the information architecture and the voice and uh, you know other natural natural user interfaces Uh, so we were 20 people for the next couple of months after that and then jeff used the prototype and we got a green light to go into pre-production from there and then the team gradually ramped up to about 80 developers and uh you know developers designers uh, we eventually got a user researcher but for a long time that was also my job was to conduct the user research on the prototypes and the uh the design explorations we'd done Mm -hmm. and i i don't know where they ended i left the team after about uh, like, 14 months to go work with the Alexa voice user interface mm-hmm. team. So
1: how did the presentation of the first prototypes to Jeff Bezos look like? Um, I was just wondering about the presentation and uh, the system. Did you already use voice recognition, machine learning, or was it more sort of a role-playing Wizard of Oz? What kind of tools did you use to get the message across?
0: Well, we definitely couldn't ask everything. Um, by the yeah. time we got to that 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 last pre-production prototype, we and we weren't what's an interesting there is we were still not an alexa product mm-hmm. so it was a voice enabled hardware product but it what we hadn't committed to doing natural language yet and so really okay. the voice design for the core echo look experience it's almost more about what uh what she keeping it simple as opposed to throwing a bunch of features and things in there. And so we used off-the-shelf voice recognition libraries that are more grammar-based to allow it to recognize common commands like take a video and take a photo. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was enough. So it could recognize us when we spoke to it. The accuracy wasn't the same as you would get uh, if you released retail. And I think that's the long tail on a lot of voice uh, devices is getting from it recognizes you a little bit more than a coin flip to it recognizes you more than 90% of the time that takes a lot of training. That's where a lot of the artificial intelligence and machine learning come in. Mm -hmm. Uh, So at the time it was like, it would recognize you some of the time and during, well, you know, while you're showing off the prototype, there's usually an engineer, like looking at the output to see how close it came to recognizing you or what it thought it heard instead so that we can learn from it. So there's, you know, at the prototype stage, there's a certain amount of Mm -hmm. tolerance for that, that point in the we you know especially at that point the the echo had come out so luckily jeff was already familiar with like how voice technology worked and didn't uh, on the curve uh, and so that was but earlier in the mm-hmm. process we have had like an interim prototype that i used for research and for that, I had to program like a web server to to mock to and a little website I could operate from my phone. So when a custo- so when I was testing with with a participant and they said something that matched what the system would recognize, I would just hit the button on the phone behind my back, and they would think that it had recognized their voice, but it was what we mm-hmm. call Wizard of Oz testing. Now, if you're running a Wizard of Oz yeah. test as a designer, you need to stay honest and not give it 100% accuracy, but uh, that you can usually get a lot of insight about whether or not people want to interact with their voice or whether or not it's natural without ever having anything functional from a, from a voice recognition mm-hmm. perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was about to ask the design methodologies and tools you use in prototyping along the process. I guess Wizard of Oz played a big role. Role playing uh, is a great tool, but maybe you can share out some of the tricks you learned.
0: Well, I think, you know, one thing I learned is that it's usually not worth the effort for your first prototype to actually run voice recognition, it, it, in, in, yeah. it, especially if it's command and control based. If you're telling the device to do something, then, then really there's a lot of cheaper ways to give people the same experience in a test and get the feedback you need about whether or not it's worth making the investment to go to natural language. Um so that I think that was one of the biggest takeaways uh, and and that the prototyping I could do was quick and dirty. It was interesting what we played around with. Like, we we spent a lot of time prototyping how to give LED-based visual feedback because while you don't want the thing necessarily recognizing your voice, you do want it behaving as if it recognized your voice. And if you've ever used one of these Alexa family of devices, like LED feedback is an important part of that interaction if the device is visible. And so, you know, in some ways, it was more about non-traditional prototyping. Like, how can we get a visual mm-hmm. component to to back up the voice component or how are we going to use sound effects here? Um, and yeah. Yeah, so it's, I, I learned as many designers do when they're doing prototyping, it's like, uh, honestly, the the cheaper, the better uh, when it comes to get it, you get so distracted with high fidelity stuff that you stop listening to the customer cuz you're so in love with what you've come up with so it was quick and dirty prototyping mm-hmm.
1: yeah what i can imagine is maybe also you need to sort of immerse yourself in the context right if you iterate on use cases and scenarios right so uh, is it a pro- does it does it gets used in a bathroom or is it uh, a scenario for the living room or for uh, the bedroom. So
0: yeah, that's a great point. You also
1: played a little bit with that sort of the immersing yourself in the context and then trying out the use cases, trying out the concepts. I guess that played a, that must have impact as well.
0: Yes, uh, it's a, it's a great point that especially with natural language products, like uh, anything that incorporates voice or gesture, like the context can really change the way people use the product. And so we, as a designer, especially early in the process, part of my job was to make sure that everybody on the team understood that context deeply and uh, could you know kept it kind of in their heart when they were working on the project and that was the role that our storyboards played so after the uh, after the initial green light for those two storyboards I expanded that to 18 storyboards actually that incorporated a bunch of different use cases end to end and showed who the customer is, where they are, who else is there with them, what furniture is in the room, how they transition between rooms Mm -hmm. where's their phone um and and making sure and then making those storyboards easily accessible by the entire development team throughout the process and we also use those to rally like we literally just put them all up on the wall and had the the our our partner hardware and software teams just post-it note the heck out of them with you know questions and concerns and this doesn't seem feasible for round one that kind of stuff and then when you're, you know, it, it, the mm-hmm. design studio, so to speak, we were we were locked away in this room that fit like twelve people at first, and the room was just full of. I, I my manager was so, uh, uh, she, uh, she went to ikea and bought a bunch of closet stuff and like brought in you know we brought in clothes from home and hung it up in the closet we had a full we had, we were playing with a whole bunch of full length mirrors because the product would replace a full length mirror so we wanted to know kind of like what you know what role those things would play and where they would be in the the, the closet and like we had this hypothesis that proved false that yeah. that people would keep the device near a mirror so that they wouldn't need the phone to, to position. Uh, it, and it turned out that many people just didn't have full-length mirrors. So they wanted this to replace it, this little camera. But uh, yeah, so like literally I would go into work every day and have to walk through a mock-up of a closet to get to my desk. Uh, and like we lived in, in that context. And like it was so weird because it felt like a fun house. There's all these mirrors. There's just like clothes everywhere. It felt like a design project that my teenage self had imagined it was very it was fun but and it was so it was so secretive that no one knew what was going on in that room like all the windows were tinted and and i it was so hard not to just explain to people how bizarre that environment was uh but it was it was great uh and and the thing is i'll tell you that i've mentioned this to some people before but when i started and they told me what the project was at first i was a little bit nervous that i made the wrong decision because i was like oh, it's a selfie camera. Like, am I contributing to the downfall of society by being like, oh, is this the height of narcissism? And it wasn't until I like went out and listened to mm-hmm. the customers with the, the, the other folks on my team sat in their bedrooms and heard them talk about how stressful it was to choose the right clothes for work or watch a mother with a child trying to pick her clothes for her job as a teacher the next day, carrying the child through three rooms because they didn't have closets big enough for her clothes in any one room trying to remember where she kept this one pair of pants. Like, you know, it's the. Uh, it became clear that while photos were the vector to help people manage their wardrobes, the problem we were solving was not take mm-hmm. a selfie. The problem we were solving was uh, looking your best mm-hmm. is stressful. And... And in many cases, when you live in small co- with a lot of people, small quarters, uh, or you're just a very busy person, it you, you lose track of what resources you have at your disposal to look your best. And that was our job was to make that process easier.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what's also in-
0: then I felt a lot better about things.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I think what's also interesting about what you said is uh, in terms of you know the context because very often voice inter- user interfaces are used in a sort of a secondary. It's sort of a secondary interaction. They maybe do something else. They, for example, cooking. Um, they, you know, like you said, they dress themselves or whatever. So, and then they use that interaction with the machine, kind of while they're doing these other interactions. And this is maybe something also different than designing a graphical user interface, which is used actively as you know. There's nothing else the, the person's doing. So. Um, yeah, I think the, the immersion—that's maybe one reason why the immersion plays a big role because it's it's part of you know, a, a content, like a, a spatial interaction. Actually,
0: mm-hmm. it's a great point, and that's one of the I find that especially being one of the folks working on Alexa fairly early in its life cycle, an argument I got from folks a lot was like, well, why do I need that? Cause I can already set a timer on my phone. And the, our, my argument back is like, it's not about mm-hmm. doing new things in a lot of cases. It is about doing things you could already do in a way that's better for you in the moment. Uh, they, they, and you know, Microsoft has this inclusiveness toolkit, which talks around about like situational disabilities. Mm-hmm. Like even if you have full use of your hands and you know, using a keyboard or a phone is natural for you. There are times at which your mm-hmm. hands are full for whatever reason or you're injured. And in those cases, you, just because you have the phone or the keyboard doesn't mean you can complete the task uh, it, without you know, some kind of discomfort or problem where, where voice interfaces solve that uh, in a unique way. But it does mean that if you're re- working on voice interfaces, especially, you can't assume your customer is looking at your device. You can't even now assume that your customer is in the same room as your device. Uh, and so we, they could, mm-hmm. yeah. we, there was so much we could take for granted when we were doing web design and it was just on the desktop. And that has completely changed, which is why storyboarding is so important uh, and why like a lot of designers didn't have to incorporate that yeah. into their process for traditional digital design, but I, I still maintain it's like really crucial if you're doing a natural natural user interface product because you can't make that assumption anymore that a customer is glued to the device.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a really interesting point. Um, the idea that you know you can also you know the notion that some things you can do also do on your phone, but the input medium, like you said, it's a it's a different one. Like you don't have to pull out a smartphone and actually do the interaction. You can you know, do it um, just by you know saying something. And it's you know, much quicker in many situations. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned des- the, your design team, the design department, and then um, you had also had product teams. Can you tell a little bit about how the setup uh, was uh, back then? Was it you worked in a core product team and were not part of like a bigger design department or did you work on that product team out of a design department? Where everyone from amazon was basically
0: it's interesting because i think design still kind of gets caught in the middle and i don't think any large companies really found the silver bullet for how to organize their designers with respect Mm -hmm. to the product teams Uh, for the echo look specifically uh uh, even Manolis had spun up a team that was called the concept lab and they came out of retail but it was a design and prototyping focused lab environment and kind of like an incubator and then projects would spin Mm -hmm. out Uh, And so because my project had spun out, you know, the idea for the Echo Look had come out of them. Uh, We were still organized through Eva. She was the, the project vision holder. But then because we spanned hardware as well, like this required hardware, there was the quote unquote product team was largely the folks at Lab 126 in Sunnyvale in a different city down in California who brought their mm-hmm. expertise from the Kindle and from you know what turned out to be the Echo. Uh, and so and and you know the software largely came from them as well. And so they were organizationally like up through a different you know a different head of product for a long time that was Robert Zayner, um, and so design was kind of in parallel with that and we were a much smaller group. At first, it was just a a product Hmm. manager, Maggie, and then myself. And then we spun out, add some more designers, a few researchers. And so there's like a little design studio attached to the Echo look. And we were a really unique, like all the Echo products were run differently. We were the first quote unquote third party product that came onto the Alexa platform that didn't start as an Echo product. So we were an oddball in a lot of ways, but I think that helped us to kind of be scrappy and stay innovative. When I moved over to Alexa, there was a centralized voice design team and they were in the same organization as all the people working on the speech science and the software for Alexa. So we were a little closer to the implementation from an organizational perspective. But I think mm-hmm. I actually felt that both sides of those, both of those projects in general, the partnership with product was really strong. Uh, I, the, the folks at Lab 126 were amazing. Uh, and the fact that the product resembles so closely what we originally envisioned is just a testament to all of their talent. And, you know, at the, the you know, all the folks who were in the early days of Echo, you look at how disruptive that product was and helmet, how easy, we take it for granted because it's successful today, but it would have been so easy to fail. It would have been so easy to be disrespectful of customers, like privacy or the sovereignty of their homes, like the, the like the sanctity of, of the their environments, things like that. It would have been so easy to be too verbose or not responsive enough or to pick the wrong things to focus on. So that that's a testament to close partnership. Uh, now, I've seen this happen at a lot of large companies. When a scrappy startup project turns into a profit center, it becomes more risk averse. Uh, and I, you know, you've seen a little bit of the same thing happen with all of the assistants on the market today. You know, uh, Alexa and mm-hmm. Okay Google. Like you see that the pace of innovation slows mm-hmm. as there becomes money to be lost.
1: So the main design team was basically in Sunnyvale, the, the like you say, like the core Amazon design team or the design department. And in in, in Amazon back then in Seattle, it was more spread out in like product teams or you know, pre-development teams.
0: Uh, Seattle was where the design team was located. And then the, the large, the, the, the Echo Look product team was in Sunnyvale. So that's... Uh, it, and, okay, but th- there's no mm-hmm. one uh there, there's no one exact recipe especially now I think there are some teams that are more Seattle based and some teams are entirely Sunnyvale based and you know things shift around as organizations change like I was astonished the other day to hear that uh, the team, because I think Alexa itself is around a thousand people when I was there two years and change ago, and now they're up to 10,000 on Alexa. And I was just like, I can't even, I'm still processing that information. I don't, and that's not just design. That's like the whole kit and caboodle, the whole product team, all the speech scientists and Uh, software developers and hardware uh, you know engineers and everything but still that is a lot of people (laughs)
1: yeah and I think the setup makes sense for I think the 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 time uh, you worked on on that product need to be fast need to be you know really close everyone need to be you know work very close yeah if you would have a, a, a central design department I think everything would have been much slower also right
0: yeah, it's it being being empowered to, to kind of stand around. And a lot of credit goes to Jeff, too, because, I mean, that is one of his strengths as a, a leader of the company. Is he's not afraid of innovation, of taking small risks. Small teams. He's not afraid of small teams. In fact, he prefers them. And he's willing yeah. to just say, like, here's some money. Go experiment. I trust you.
1: Mm-hmm. You do acting also besides your um, design shop. Uh, can you tell a little bit about how your side activities uh, maybe help you to be a better designer? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, and it's very topical cause I, I was really excited a couple weeks ago. Uh, I gave a, a sort of hybrid performance slash keynote at the, uh, design ops summit in New York run by Rosenfeld media and they, uh, they're great hosts, but they wanted something a little bit different. They asked pretty much the same question mm-hmm. and, what I've struggled with how to verbalize how much improv has helped me in my career because it's like breathing to me now. It's I've done it for so long. I've been a professional improviser for a little over 12 years now. Uh, and I learned in college a few years before I, I started doing it professionally. And... But I I think especially recently, as I kind of reflect on the questions people ask me, there's a couple of different major areas where it helps. There's the stuff that I think relates most directly to what we were just talking about my storytelling Mm -hmm. abilities like my ability to generate compelling and uh, realistic story well realistic's the wrong word Mm -hmm. my ability to generate compelling storyboards that accurately represent customers as human beings with wants and needs and emotions stems a lot from my training as a storyteller at improv we talk a lot about story structure characters motivation and then you live that through performing those characters in real time and I think that's that's been really helpful for me. But be- besides the storytelling, like if you put that to one side, maybe you're on a traditional team, which is doing more web-based stuff, uh, the soft skills you gain from improv are helpful both just in, I think, the way everybody thinks, which is it makes you better at presenting, it makes you more confident, it makes you more you know compelling as a presenter. But I think the biggest and deepest benefit anybody can get from improv is the way it changes the way you think and problem solve the way it makes you a better listener and the way improv also changes the way you approach problems so when we were presenting that talk a few weeks ago i I brought forward three principles that i felt like reflected Mm -hmm. some of these benefits and one of them you know improvisers if you talk with improvisers you hear a lot about this concept of yes and which is essentially a, a manifestation of active listening In in improv, we are trained to yes and our partners, which is to say we listen Mm -hmm. to the offer they give us and then we build on that offer. We don't just say like, oh, that's a great idea that we should have voice interaction, Let's do gesture instead. It's like no. It's like okay, voice interaction. That's right, and maybe we can make it super conversational and natural, and maybe we can allow them to customize their their the personality to to make it feel even more you know that kind of like you build on the original offer as opposed to just throwing alternate sort of orthogonal offers in. So that's one principle that like by doing improv that becomes kind of core to the way you problem solve. Uh, And there's also some other concepts around like...
1: Mm -hmm. That's really fascinating.
0: I, uh, I love talking to people about this now, especially that I'm like, I think I have a way to talk about it, a framework for talking to other designers about how this can help. The other thing I've noticed is that the more you do improv, the more you learn to justify the suggestions that come from your fellow players of the audience. You know, if you've ever seen an improv performer get a suggestion from the audience, they're usually sort of like random suggestions, and sometimes they're even antagonistic at first glance, right? Like, I can't tell you the number of times I have had gynecologists as a suggestion from an audience. You're like, that's what you want to see? Uh, but as an improviser over time, you learn to treat any offer as a gift you know, and instead of being like, Oh God, that's that constraint is frustrating, you say, like, Great, how can I make the best use out of this constraint that's been thrown to me by the audience? And I've found, especially in some tougher recent projects, that thinking really come to bear where like you get really tough feedback and I've had coworkers be like, Well, why didn't you Fight back harder on that. It's like because in the end it's another constraint. I can adapt to that. I can take that offer and see how to adapt our thinking and reconcile it with that offer. I don't have to look at it as like antagonistic Mm -hmm. because it threatens our original idea. It's like okay, that's more data. Let's work with that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is really interesting. uh, The connection between acting and working as a designer. Before we talk about your venture idea, plus I would love to talk a little bit about the change in industry for a second. Um, Since you went back to Microsoft after a while, how did you see the design cultures evolving at Amazon and especially at Microsoft?
0: Oh, my goodness. It's a great question. There's so much there. Uh, So I, I kind of alluded to the fact that when a product moves from scrappy startup to profit making, risk tolerance goes away. And I've found over my career that as I evolve, I'm drawn more to teams that are willing to take bigger risks or give design more agency for really reflecting customer desires and iterating rapidly. And I could see that Alexa was moving away from that, uh, partially just by necessity, but like, you know, we had more vice presidents involved in every discussion. They were still big worthwhile problems, but I had gotten a little burnt out on that kind of political problem solving. And I had not intentionally intended Mm. to go back to Microsoft. I intended to cast Mm -hmm. a wider net. Uh, and it's really ironic because I had gone, to, I had been using a couple of like uh, search services where you can kind of casually search for a while, and a team that had worked with me before caught wind that I was uh, in- available and willing to consider Microsoft and reached out. Uh, there were people that I had worked with in server before that thought that there was a role for me there, um, and the reason I ended up going back to Microsoft was that. What that team offered me was a I could hit the ground running because I, I had already worked with several of them so there was less of that adjustment as a new 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 designer but there were some really strong leaders there and I saw some really great evidence of like growth mindset and questioning like I was coming into the Azure team and they were really upfront about the fact like look we did a design release and we tried to release a set of guidelines and it kind of failed and we learned a ton and so now we're we're pivoting on that and we're we've making a ton of change this year. And it's like I really liked that that sense of like, we we're willing to say this didn't work out and we learned from it and we're moving on, which is not behavior I had seen at Microsoft in my previous tenure. Like, they're kind of dug in. Once you'd made a decision, you just kept chipping away at it. Uh, without major major Mm -hmm. pivoting so it's like that uh, between that and sort of the and you know and i talked to a lot of folks and i talked to i always make a point of talking to women on the team uh, especially because my interview loop did not have any women which is a bit of a red flag Uh, and and they mentioned that that was a more inclusive and supportive environment that they had encountered in a lot of their uh, the rest of their career so it's like this seems like it's worth a shot it seems like as a designer an organization that's willing to pivot is willing to listen to customers um, and a lot of the reason for the pivot was low MPS scores. So they were listening to customers and willing to make major changes. Like, okay, let's go, let's go, give this a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I met a ton of great people over there. I got to be a design lead on a number of projects. I learned a great. I think it was really influential for me around. Uh, how to handle guidelines releases at scale? We had, Azure has seventy partner teams. There's no way you know what's right exactly for seventy different partners and their use cases. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's you know it was very much about establishing best practices, a path of least resistance, and then setting up open channels of communication to allow them to bring their best practices back to the core. But when I came to my first day of orientation, you know, and my first year, my first Microsoft orientation was in twenty. 2007 and my second one was in 2016 and it was night and day. It was astonishing to me that in two because I had only been gone for two years, it had changed a Bunch. There was even like slides where they pointed out, "Here's all the old Microsoft behaviors, and here's the new stuff we're trying." Uh, they had a female technical fellow as like the guest speaker. She was referencing Star Trek. It was like she was speaking directly into my soul. But it was a. Uh, there was this. They really focused in the orientation on the growth mindset as opposed to being right all the time, fixed mindset. And I, I loved that. There's always pockets of old Microsoft if you know where to look, but. I the commitment to inclusiveness the, in the products, the commitment to like making things more, and, and the accessibility pillar that Sacha built really finally invited designers to the table at Microsoft in a way they had not been included before. So that was a really great vehicle for change. So, it I mean, it really did. It changed a ton. Uh, and... I, I, You know, as I tell people, they're like, did you like that? So you might you boomeranged. Like, how do you feel about that? I'm like, I don't regret leaving Microsoft. I don't re- regret going back to Microsoft. I, you know, I'm very thankful I went to Amazon and it was hugely influential for me, but I also think it was the right time for me to move on. And it was, and it's all—it's been interesting too, because just because you're leaving a place doesn't mean that it's not the right place for other people. Like every designer, every person in tech, your career path is different. What you need is different at different times. So I actually had a situation where a former colleague from Cortana basically took my spot on Alexa, mm-hmm. and I'm ha- having open conversations with him about like, here's what's good, here's what's bad. If you're, you know, if your goal is to get better experience at the cutting edge of voice technology, you should absolutely join this team.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, super interesting. Especially because many of would consider your work at Microsoft more as, you know, B two B, and at Amazon maybe more as B two C. But maybe as a designer, it doesn't play a big role at all, right? Because it's always about the user, right, and the user feedback, etc how was your experience?
0: Exactly. For whether you're B2C or B2B, like the core fundamentals a designer brings to the table don't have to change. And in many cases, a designer can offer a lot of value when onboarding in a new space for the first time because it helps us more naturally ask the right questions. Uh, the only major difference I see is the complexity of the information architecture. And in you're When you're in B2B, it's yeah. that's an adjustment for someone who's only been in the consumer space. Like it, they genuinely... Um, it's you know it's i often but i also say like you know business users are people too yeah. they're consumers too at the end of the day yeah, absolutely there's no reason we can't aspire to something just mm-hmm. as usable for them
1: absolutely so last question can you talk a little bit about what you do now at idea plus
0: yeah absolutely so uh a couple months ago i made the decision that it was time to leave microsoft again uh, that uh, and and in part I was driven by like lifestyle changes. Like there, there were a lot of things going on at Microsoft. We got relocated, my commute Mm -hmm. tripled. So sometimes you just end up at a position where your family needs you to move in a different direction. Um, But also I have been kind of, I've been really inspired by how much the industry is ready to learn how to do voice design, to add it to their design toolkits. And so I've been traveling the world the last two years, giving talks and workshops, on a number of topics, but primarily on natural user interfaces, working, designing on, designing for new product, designing for voice enabled product, mm-hmm. uh, and, and working on these, these new, and how to approach new technology problems in general as a designer. Cause like working on the Echo Look, it was like blank page. It's very intimidating, but like, so how do you, you turn that undefined sort of project brief into something that can actually ship to customers. So, um, going out on my own, starting my company, uh, IdeaPlatz, uh, allows me to go out to companies and individuals and, and share the, the insights I I've learned along the way about how to develop these products. So, so I teach voice design workshops. I teach improv for design workshops. I teach, um, storyboarding workshops I've just introduced into the, uh, into my, uh, Toolkit. And it also gives me a place where I can start doing my own conversational UI prototyping and experimentation. Uh, mm-hmm. I've shipped a couple of Alexa skills. Mostly those were for fun on the side, but uh, there's a couple of other skills I have on my shortlist that I want to develop. And, you know, in my last few months at Microsoft, especially, uh, but really the last year or two, I've been playing with chatbots, not just voice or voice interaction, but like how does text based natural language interaction differ? Where is that really useful? Especially if you think about open workspaces, that's the big problem for voice adoption in the enterprise. It's like, I can't talk to my computer if I'm surrounded by 30 other people. It's just socially awkward but chatbots and natural language interaction on a text-based medium if my hands are already on a keyboard or on a phone that still offers merit over like our approach to helping business users on board today which is go to google type some searches in and sort through hundreds of pages of documentation like as an elec- as an azure developer when i would prototype i found i just had specific questions i wanted answered like uh, What, you know, what type of project is this database best suited for? Or, um, you know, how do I uh, disable my virtual machine or something like that? Those are very targeted questions. But if you search on Google, you could get, like, way too much information back. So, like, chatbots is used for onboarding purposes I'm very interested in. Um, I'm also really interested in, in, like companionship uh, chatbots like you know we have an aging population mm-hmm. and some of my students in my workshops have have started to experiment with like how do you help somebody who's grieving and alone because like they lost their friend and they're not there or you know there was a job posting that uh, Siri gave put out a while back looking for psychologists and mentioning that a lot of people ask Siri for help like I'm not mm-hmm. you know I'm depressed I'm sad I'm suicidal how do I handle that and it's like okay I don't think these, de- these experiences should replace human beings, but there are always times where human beings find themselves alone and a device is the closest thing. Mm-hmm. Can we do something with that? Can we be more beneficial than harmful? Like, I think that's worth exploring. So uh, that, that's some of the fun stuff I want to play with in my free time. Uh, but uh, Platz allows me the uh, opportunity to go and empower a whole new generation of designers to work with these uh, natural user interfaces and uh, hopefully make their experiences better by results. So designers in it for impact, getting to teach other designers, that's great. Like I'm so inspired by other people being inspired. Happy little spiral.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think this is a super relevant mission. All right, Sharon. tons of great content, learnings, insights. And also a lot of topics, so it would be hard to find an overarching title for this episode (laughs) Uh, because there are so many different topics. Uh, But uh, thank you so much. Yeah,
0: thank you for the great questions. They were very fun to answer.
1: That was the episode. If you want to give us feedback on the podcast, have something to contribute to the next episode, or just want to get in touch, feel free to connect with us either on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram messages, or simply via the designdrives.org website. We love to hear from you.